what you're talking about is intermarket correlations and intermarket relationships in the way that they, things behave in a cycle. Now, what is actually so unique about this current cycle is uh, for the first time in many decades, we've seen uh, the decoupling of the inverse correlation of bonds to stocks. Welcome to the Business of Doing Business. I'm your host, Dwayne Carrigan. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. So welcome to the podcast, buddy. Super appreciate you being here. I often refer to you personally as the pro. I've known you for 15 years, uh, Patrick Serezna. So founder and owner of Big Picture Trading. Uh, we met when you were running a business with another friend of mine, Learn to Trade. You guys had a, a business where you're teaching people how to trade. And for full disclosure, I've worked with you guys through those times. I've learned to trade through your uh, programs. I've taken a ton of them, almost all of them, I would think. You know, I'm happy to say like they've been amazing and I've learned so much and I'm so grateful. I mean, not only to you as a friend, but also, you know, a bit of a mentor in the, you know, financial uh, category or industry. You're the chief derivative market strategist for uh, big picture trading. But you also have two podcasts. You're a co-host on Market Huddle and another one called Macro Voices. And so well-experienced. Here's the one thing I love about you. I think what the listeners will pick up is that you're not just a trader. You're a business owner. You're a business operator. You have a business that you've developed uh, and you've gone through iteration after iteration and you've gone through all the work that our listeners are, have gone through or are currently going through. And we'll continue to go through. So I love, you know, to have a conversation. This was really immediate for me. And I, I'm grateful for you kind of dropping everything and being on the show. Uh, because I personally have some economic concerns. I know the people that I talk with have economic concerns. We just, I just had a dinner on Saturday night and a whole bunch of stuff popped up in our dinner without me saying I was going to have you on the show. But there's inflation, there's interest rates, there's the, you know, the impact on the wars on the markets. We've got massive car loan debt, consumer debt, and the past tons of quantitative easing, which needs to be kind of taken out of the system. We still have supply chain issues. Here in Canada, housing prices are, you know, have gone through the roof and, and housing shortages are, are everywhere. And, and children buy houses when they're coming out of school. They're living back at their parents' place. Their parents are having to loan money to them. I mean, I hear this stuff all the time. So I just wanted to have you on the show because I think it's timely. The markets seem to be, and this is from a non-expert, but it seems to me like they're at this precipice of, of we could fall or we, I mean, there's, it could move in a bunch of different ways, but we may not see that continued skyrocket growth that we've kind of experienced over the last few years. And so... <laughs> Where do you even begin, there, right? My, why I wanted you to have you on the show, but I, I just wanted to just take it down to the basics and really get your insight of 
not only where you think we're going, but where the big influences are going to be against business owners and not just business owners, but there's people that are listening to the podcast that are housewives that are, you know, that work in corporate careers and they're feeling the pain. Our employees, like we're in industries that are predominantly minimum wage or just over minimum wage. And I'm actually for the the last few years have worried me greatly with the way inflation has, has uh, taken place. And so thank you so much for being on the show, bud. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you for having me, Dwayne. And, you know, uh, thank you for uh, the kind words towards uh, all the, our programs. But uh, I have to say that uh, over the uh, 15 years, uh, you actually played a very important role to uh, the way that I looked at the business. And, you know, you've spent hours uh, over the years giving some great insights uh, and observations and things to consider. And uh, you've been uh, a, a very valuable help and, uh, and a mentor to me as well. So thank you very much, Dwayne. And I'm happy to be on the show with you, bud. Well, thank you for those words. You've done more for me, I think, than yeah. I've done for you. So, uh, <laughs> Let's get into it. I mean, I'm curious, where would you like to start with, you know, after I, you know, kind of just put out that spiel, what are your thoughts? Okay. Well, I let's, let's start high level because look, we can get into granular things about where the markets are and, you know, what are investment opportunities and where, where are the risks and all these different elements. But I think uh, the pain that we see in today's uh, world where inflation is eating away purchasing power and people are finding it incredibly hard to make ends meet is worth the conversation to start off with. And uh, we went through decades of disinflationary pressure. And uh, it was a period where we lived in a, an incredibly robust time where running businesses and investing was so easy. And we entered a, a new period where, on a geopolitical level, uh, globalization evolved. I don't want to say it in a doomsdayish way or anything, but the, this this uh, world uh, hegemony that was there of under a U.S. dollar system uh, was at its pinnacle probably ten plus years ago. And since then, uh, the world's been evolving, and a part of the uh, the world evolving has brought about uh, inflation. And it's something that decades of investors and uh, retail investors have not experienced. Like uh, basically since uh, the, the mid 80s, this was the first time, okay, let's talk uh, uh, in a Canadian perspective. This is the first time in like 30 plus years where somebody is refinancing their mortgage at a higher interest rate than their previous mortgage. In the past uh, uh, three decades, every time one would renew their mortgage, it was always at a lower interest rate. This made capital and refinance and extracting money out of your homes uh, a very simple and quite systematic process. It uh, created uh, an era of easy money and real estate speculation and all these different things that uh, defined the last three, four decades uh, that we've been in. And we are now in a period where the central banks had to hit the brakes. Uh, and they had to because they can provide liquidity so long as money is stable. And stable money 
by the definition of what central banks tell us is that two to three percent inflation right there that's their goal that's the target that they spew out you know stable uh you know uh, jobs markets good unemployment numbers and and stable inflation that's the goal and so long as that's there they can allow credit and money to uh, be uh, amply made and available. And that is what lubricates business, lubricates investment, uh, lubricates uh, real estate. Every element uh, of, of capital markets is driven by this, uh, this money of, and availability of money. And one of the things that a lot of uh, the listeners may not understand is they actually believe central banks are the ones that create that money supply or create that credit, but they don't. They only make a portion of it. Uh, in fact, a very large amount, uh, I think that uh, I remember a statistic, something close to 80% of money supply and credit is actually created at money center banks. So the, uh, the uh, private corporations, and like for instance, in Canada, it would be the, the royal banks of the world. And in order for these private money center banks to lend, they are capital constrained, so they need uh, credit worthy borrowers and that uh, can actually afford to make the payments on, on this debt and credit. And that was always something for the last many decades that was very easy. Everyone could finance at very low interest rates to the point that uh, at the peak here uh, several uh, years ago, people could literally borrow for a few percent at a retail level. And that has now gone away because with inflation, the central banks must protect the purchasing power of money. And therefore, they need stable money. And stable money means that they had to hit the brakes on the credit creation machine. They had to hit the brakes on the amount of money being uh, supplied in there. Uh, now, uh, you know, we could argue the direct correlation, for instance, of money supply to inflation. You know, my uh, co-host on Market Huddle will always shit on me. Uh, uh, Kevin will always shit on me when I make the correlation of, uh, of money supply to, uh, to inflation directly. He thinks it's much more dynamic. But there was an element where... In the United States, and it's just the one statistic I had handy, but it's similar in Canada. Once COVID hit and they hammered the brakes on uh, the economy and halted everything, uh, what ended up happening is they had to restart the engine, right? The, the, the economic engine had to get restarted because they literally it was a government-induced 30% contraction in the economy uh, that happened during the COVID shutdown and, uh, and they needed to fire it up. And we saw uh, 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 basically through cheap and easy credit that has often been guaranteed by uh, governments through, uh, you know, SERP loans and other, uh, other types of uh, uh, loans that were given out, uh, PPP loans and other things that were uh, lent out during COVID. These were uh, credit that was not a risk to a bank. There was a government-backed credit creation at uh, the private money center banks. They basically went in there and the money supply in the United States went from $15 trillion to $22 trillion in less than two years. Okay. So I have a question. Sorry. And I, I just, I don't, I want, I don't want us to get too run away because- 
A, I'll get confused. <laughs> and, 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 and so I just want to recap. So, you know, you spoke about this 30-year period where rates were basically falling over the past 30 years. And I can remember the first mortgage I had, I think, was 9 plus percent, 10%. And so obviously, you know, it's fallen from to the point where a few years ago we were at basically 0% interest-free money. Earlier, you were talking about that. Is that just really where people start to use their house as a, they're a, either using the real estate market to just falsely kind of bump up equity and, and they're playing, playing the market as it rises, which is great until it doesn't rise any longer and it falls off a cliff. But they're also using their house as a bank telling machine. Yeah. You know, just retaking out mortgage after mortgage to buy their cars, their toys, their boats, their this, the snowmobiles, whatever else that they're into or do vacations. Is that what you're kind of leading to, like from from the average person out there on the street? Absolutely. Like uh, you, you basically have a scenario and uh, I, there was a very strong culture, especially in Canada and Australia, where there's a strong belief that real estate never goes down in price. And if you just hold it long enough, it will always appreciate. And when you are in an environment where you can, listen, someone can drink that Kool-Aid and, uh, and believe it. But the problem is, is that when you're leveraging real estate because your belief is it never goes down, the problem is, is that when that mortgage rate uh, rises considerably and your carry cost becomes greater than your ability to deal with it, you now have a, a big problem because A, you have this vision that real estate never goes down. I just got to hold it long enough and I'll be fine. Right. But uh, but at the same time, you have no way of actually carrying or breaking even on your on your investment, and you're dragging down by the fact that uh, you know your mortgage rate doubled uh, because of the interest rate rise. Yeah, I, I took a I took an Uber a couple of weeks ago, and the Uber drivers was telling me that his uh, mortgage rate went up two and a half per, two and a half times. Yeah, I mean, it would be hard to argue to your point about real estate price of real estate never come, never goes lower, which I mean, it has increased over time considerably and whether or not, so you're not arguing whether real estate's going to go up or go down. What you're arguing is the cost of the real estate and, and whether people the impact can afford, of interest rates. yeah, the, can, can you afford to get through the, you the know, rough time. the rough time and, and, you know, higher interest rates could be here a lot longer. So there was one other thing that you said earlier that I w just wanted to double check because I, I didn't realize at all that 80% of the money supply is created by banks based on the ability for people, the, the borrower's ability to, to pay back that money. So the more of those people that are, have equity in their homes or et cetera, et cetera, they go to the bank, they get a loan, and that's where the money supply is being created. I thought a lot of the money supply, and this was one of, actually, oddly enough, was one of the conversations we got into on Saturday night at the dinner table with uh, some friends of ours, which was, well, then what's the difference between quantitative easing, which I think you kind of were talking about, which is an example of what you had mentioned when COVID happened and the government supplied, you know, government backed loans, that's QE. And then money supply created by, you know, creditors or borrowers. Money center banks. What's the difference? And and then that was the conversation we were having on Saturday night. Was how, how does that money? My understanding is at some point in time when 
the economy starts to shrink, they've, that is a, the cause of the government pulling that money out of the system. Am I wrong on that? Or The, the central bank is created uh, at the highest level to think of it like, let's use a Canadian analogy as Canadians. Uh, if each of the banks were a sports team, like a hockey team, then uh, the central banks are like uh, the commissioner and the head of the league. They sit there and they come at the top and they make sure that all the teams are following set rules about how the game is played. And they bail out a certain team if it's going bankrupt because they don't want to disrupt uh, the, uh, the way that the uh, whole league was, dis uh, was created. The central bank is like the head and they, uh, they make sure that this uh, uh, the, the banking and financial system runs as smooth as possible. I mean, we could go into history. I'll just give a very quick thing. But like ultimately back in 1907, um, when uh, there was a devastating financial crisis uh, of uh, greater magnitude, even arguably, than what happened in uh, 2008, uh, there was no central bank in the United States. And J.P. Morgan himself had to actually orchestrate and coordinate with bankers to bail out the entire financial system. And it was literally in the years to come that they created the central bank in the United States because they said it's not up to a private citizen and a, a private bank uh, to be in charge of bailing out the financial system. We need a head, uh, someone that is coordinating everything at a higher level uh, that does all of this. And so the thing is, it's a big coordination. And ultimately, it's not like one or the other. Ultimately, if the, uh, if the government needs a big fiscal spend uh, and there's a shortfall of being able to, uh, to raise that money in the private capital markets, the, the, this is where the uh, central bank will expand its balance sheet and put that debt onto its balance sheet by literally printing money and creating it. So often central banks have a direct correlation uh, or direct role to play in funding fiscal spending by governments. And especially when they're running huge deficits and need to borrow large sums of money, like financing war, like we see very much happening today. And, um, and so they play that very important role, but, but the vast majority of money is still uh, created by money center. And especially at a consumer level, because an average consumer does not have the ability to go to the central bank to borrow money or, uh, or, uh, or go to the government directly to borrow money. And so uh, the, those money center banks are an important intermediary uh, in accessing that capital. And, uh, and so when you have quantitative uh, tightening or quantitative easing, like we're buying assets, what happens is when these private money center banks get their balance sheets constrained, like the, exam the extreme example is 2008, right? When, when they needed a TARP bailout and all these other issues that happened. But when these banks get constrained, they uh, have to um, have alleviate the stress on their balance sheet. And central banks essentially came in in 2008 as an example of when it, uh, Bernanke started it all. They went and bought these assets off of these banks, put it on their own balance sheet, and exchange gave them the cash for having bought it. And this Im immediately deleveraged the bank's balance sheets and allowed them to restart be, uh, being healthy banks and start creating credit and get the whole economy going again. It's a role where they're all playing a synchronized game together. It's not uh, just one versus another, right? Right. Thank you for explaining that. 
so uh, I think I think though the key to kind of highlight is that we're in a period where money supply because of COVID. Okay, let me give an analogy. Okay, imagine the economy is the water level inside a bathtub, okay. right? Perpetually credit. Uh, is destroyed and leaks out uh, when the bathtub has got its plug pulled. And so water is always leaking out. And so new money supply, new credit, and everything is always being created, which allows the water level of the bathtub to stay roughly the same level. The water is coming in uh, about the same level it's leaking out. And central banks with interest rate policy and everything are trying to keep the water level roughly the same. And basically, COVID punched a massive hole in the bottom of the bathtub and the water started draining. And what you want, just to visualize it, the central banks came in and dumped ridiculous sums of water in with buckets in the top to try to bring that water level up. And suddenly the water went way too high. And now they're saying, now we got to let it leak back down. So then we now need, we got to shut off the water and let the water level come back to a reasonable level. And this is the game that we're playing. These huge volatile swings of inflation and everything are like, I, mean, I don't know if that you like that analogy or not, no, it's but a like, great, it's a great analogy, actually, but that's yeah. the game that they're playing with money and credit, right? They're, they're, they're trying to, uh, to, uh, to balance it, to create a steady place. And so we're in a period where we have not seen central banks on a global scale synchronize a credit tightening event of this magnitude since Volcker. You have to go back to the 70s and, and early 80s to have a period where central banks had to hit the brakes on everything uh, as hard as they did uh, in this, as they are in this cycle. I mean, we basically had them, it, it's a historic rate hike cycle. We have not seen something like this in, in 20, 30, 40 years. You know, everyone's like, oh, we're going to get a soft landing. Oh, we're going to get no landing and everything's going to be fine. But I don't think we've ever seen a period where we've gone from basically zero interest rates to five, six percent interest rates in such a short window of time. Uh, and uh, and the, the impact of that is still unknown. So curious when you talk about the rise of interest rates and and I mean, I didn't, I was a little young yet at this time, but I remember my parents talking about 18, 20, 22% interest rates. Yeah. So are we in that comparable time frame? I mean, obviously we're not at 18%. I know that, but from coming from zero to what are we five? I mean, I don't know what the mortgage rate is right now, but five or 6%, I guess. It's well over 5%. Is it well over 5%? Yeah. Yeah. So the overnight rates, I think five, isn't it? which is what banks borrow money at. And so where do you think this goes? I mean, in regards to soft landings, hard landings, I mean, and, and I think there's this seems to be like a willingness for every time the shit starts to hit the fan, you know, they start printing more money and they ease our way out of things. So there's an economic cycle. Uh, and it's, it's important that you, you've basically are alluding to it, which is, uh, there's a, a consistent process throughout history where the central banks tighten credit conditions. They keep things tight until they break something and they turn around and start easing. They provide all the liquidity to fire things up. The economy runs uh, a hot 
and they hit the brakes again. And it's a cycle that plays uh, uh, over and over again. Some of these cycles are much more mild and some are much more severe. And it depends on level of speculation. Uh, you know, the amount of credit and debt that's borrowed is important to correlate to as well the quality of the debt. Like for instance, the biggest problem uh, with the financial crisis in 2007, 2008 was not necessarily the amount of credit in the system. It was a uh, it was the amount of bad credit that was created by lending ninja loans and other types of horrible subprime debt to people that had no business having these loans. And suddenly when uh, Greenspan and Bernanke started raising interest rates and all of the arms interest uh, uh, loans reset, suddenly uh, no one can uh, actually uh, you know, afford to carry these uh, loans that they couldn't afford in the first place. And when it reset, it created a, 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 a massive you know, flood of real estate. And it's interesting because real estate in the U.S. has to be uh, um, viewed differently than it is in Canada, Australia, and other places. Uh, because uniquely, the United States has 30-year fixed mortgages. So the actual uh, consumer with a mortgage is not going to have the impact that Canadians are feeling. You know, Canadians have a variable rate mortgages and two, three, four year terms that when these things come up, they have to be refinanced at the prevailing interest rate. And so uh, in this case, the uh, in the United States, the, con uh, the average homeowner is nowhere near as leveraged as the uh, Canadian homeowner. They have less impact by these interest rates on their uh, lifestyles that Canadians have. Uh, and so, the, but the trade-off is uh, the risk is transferred. By giving uh, someone in the United States a fixed rate mortgage, someone in the financial system is the bag holder, right? And when, so when you look at 30-year bonds, I mean, they wiped out here. Let, let me just uh, put up a, a chart here on, uh, on a 30-year bond so we can uh, take a look at, um, you know, the percentage drop that we basically saw. They put this on a monthly chart or something. So basically what happens with the banks then? Because if the banks borrow money from the central bank, at a lower interest rate. 40% decline, by the way. So 40% decline in the long bond and uh, uh, since 2020. So basically anybody who's owned uh, US treasury bonds on the long end has wiped out 40% of their value. And we already saw the problem. Regional banks started blowing up just six months earlier in the United States. We had all sorts of problems because they had all of this longer duration shit on their on their balance sheets, and they suddenly had to market to market, uh, mark to market all of this stuff, and, and suddenly they were basically broke. Obviously, the Fed came in and and patched them up. But the point is, is that even though the consumer is fine. These banks and mortgage-backed uh, uh, security uh, assets, uh, somebody's the bag holder on these drops. Uh, like yeah, when, when all of these things are, are dropping this way, some sort of banks have this dog shit on their books. And we, haven't, we still don't know where, who's the one eating it all. Can you simplify what this whole concept is? Like, what's the simplest way to understand this? Because I will say in the bond market, like, I mean, I understand equities and, but bonds, I'm, I'm not an expert at any stretch. 
what you want to basically think uh, is, is that interest rates are discounting into the value of everything. Forget just bonds. Interest rates are discount the value of a stock that pays a dividend, right? Uh, you know what? Uh, what is the multiple you're willing to pay on buying a business? Uh, what can these businesses borrow? Uh, everything has to be rejigged. Raising interest rates forces all assets to be repriced down. Uh, and so what you want to think is bonds have this inverse correlation to interest rates, a direct inverse correlation. So when you see that this 40% decline in bonds occurred, it happened because the 30-year bond interest rates uh, went basically uh, from uh, uh, in the July of 2020, went from about 1.2% to 5%. So basically, a rise from 1% interest rates to 5% on the long bond caused a 40% wipeout in its value just because uh, of, of uh, valuing that debt uh, at the prevailing interest rate. And, uh, and so th the thing is, is that somebody, uh, as these uh, interest rates are rising, all of these assets are dropping. Uh, they're dropping in pension funds. They're dropping in uh, in banks and in, uh, investment institutions and insurance companies that own it uh, uh, for uh, for future payouts. All these different things. These these uh, bonds are getting hammered. And I would argue, uh, you know, while many people said we had a bear market in equity in 2022 because the uh, traditional definition of a 20 plus percent decline is defined as a bear market. I would argue there was really not a bear market in equity. It was one of the greatest bond bear markets in uh, in like a hundred years. We have not seen a bond market crash of this magnitude forever. I don't know what's a hundred years. Maybe I'm making shit up, but it's been an incredibly long time since we've seen this kind of carnage. When interest rates rise, it forced all of these equities to be repriced based upon uh, rising interest rates. And that's what equities experience and what equities are continuing to drag. The next phase uh, is uh, when uh, will we see the economy suffer and the consumer suffer enough that it's going to impact earnings. Because when uh, normally the greatest bear markets occur when corporate earnings contract. And some of the biggest recessions often have 30, 40, 50% declines in corporate earnings. And usually that comes with a signal of a rise in unemployment rates and all of these things. And so far, the lag effect of rising interest rates has not caused these things to break. And this, so this is one of the things that everyone's walking on pins and needles, waiting to determine uh, when uh, is the moment where the economy can't take it anymore and it starts to reflect with unemployment rates spiking and uh, the economy slowing down and bankruptcies rising and, and uh, high yield credit not being able to finance itself and all these different things that create a, a knock-on effect uh, that basically will inevitably cause uh, an economic recession. Okay, so here I have a question on this then. Like you talked about cycles earlier. And so I'm just kind of trying to imagine, is there a process to 
or a stage to the different cycles where like bonds will drop first and then interest rates will go up and then you'll start to see equities like, you know, the stocks, whether they're blue chip or, and I'm talking pretty decent. Why would I want to own a stock? Whatever. I don't want to use a name because I don't want to impact anybody's. Why would I want to own a stock that's paying a 4% dividend for me owning the stock when I can go and throw my money in a GIC and make five and a half percent? So there's that piece. And then, so then I go, well, why wouldn't people be taking their money out of the markets, moving it into GICs where it's safer and they don't have to worry about a potential fall in the markets. And then, and then is it, do the markets fall and then the economy falls or does the economy fall and then the markets fall? Like what would, what would you traditionally see the stage or order of operations be Patrick? What you're talking about is intermarket correlations and intermarket relationships in the way that they, things behave in a cycle. Now, what is actually so unique about this current cycle is uh, for the first time in many decades, we've seen uh, the decoupling of the inverse correlation of bonds to stocks. Now, so take the financial crisis. During the financial crisis, I'm just going to use uh, something. Yeah, let's you actually just use the um, uh, this uh, government bond. But financial let's go crisis. Back. You mean 08, 2008? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Right. And so what I want to do is let's let's pull up what the long bond did uh, in 2007, 2008. And uh, if you go back, um, uh, let me just scroll back here a little bit in the history. And what you can observe here is that during uh, 2000 to, uh, uh, 2007 to 2009, the long bond rallied 33% at a time when the stock market was wiping out 50%. What happened was that back then, investors had the benefit if that you had a 60-40 portfolio, 40% in bonds and 60% in equity, that while you were down 50% on your equity, you were up, you know, 20, 30% on that bond component and your blended rate means that you were down like 25%, right? And, and you experienced a lot smoother experience. And this is the typical intermarket correlation that one would uh, anticipate. And we are now in a period where this has decoupled. We now have one of the greatest bond bear markets in, uh, in many, many decades, and it's dragging all equity prices down. There is literally nowhere to hide. And the place to hide is exactly what you said, which is money markets. Like, so when you go in there and buy a one-year government uh, bond or a GIC or something like this, you have a fixed maturity that you know you're going to get your principal back within a year, and you know you're going to earn five plus percent without the risk of the volatility in being in long duration bonds and or equity or other assets like real estate and other things that are struggling. And this actually drains money from uh, these assets. And this is one of the reasons we continue to see these assets under pressure. And, uh, and I, I think the cycle has to finish playing out. What we have and what we will probably hear, I, I don't know when this is going to be released, but at the time when we're recording this, we're just a few days away from a, a, the FOMC or Fed meeting where we may have 
the pivot to a pause, okay? Because when we, most people say the Fed pivot, they assume that they're going from raising to cutting. They're not going to pivot to a, a, cut, a, a cut cycle, but there's been plenty of advertisement that this is the meeting that will confirm that the, uh, that the Federal Reserve is done raising interest rates. And historically, when they finish raise, uh, so let me just kind of give um, an example. This is the Fed funds rate history. And so the Bank of Canada, while you're pulling that up, the Bank of Canada did not raise rates last week. I think it was last week. Right. And neither did the Fed in the last meeting. And the Fed didn't. I, I think all central banks are done. We have seen central banks say in their language that they now are seeing tight financial conditions. And when you have tight financial conditions, it means they have a hard time justifying tightening them further. They needed to raise interest rates until they basically forced uh, uh, money supply contraction, things to uh, things to slow down, credit creation to slow down. They were they meant it. Now they've created the tight conditions. But I want to uh, highlight though is notice these plateaus that happen. So these are all the Fed. Uh, rate hike cycles that happened in the past, right? And so, you know, like uh, these are, for instance, all, all of these are when the, the central banks have raised interest rates in the past. So even let's say you take this one, and that was right before the financial crisis, uh, um, they stopped raising interest rates in the middle of 2006, but they left rates unchanged for over a year before they were forced to start lowering interest rates because shit started hitting the fan right and left. And they basically raised and then paused. We're likely here in a pause state, which is that almost all of these central banks are done. But that doesn't mean they're going to start cutting interest rates and or easing. They're just saying, we're not going to keep hitting the brake on the economy. We're going to let the, the car now just coast at its prevailing speed. Right. Uh, and and so that's where we're at. So since you're on this topic, like and, and I mean, I don't personally think this, but I feel like the media or I don't really know who, where it was coming from, but I feel like they were selling the public that, you know, rates are going to come up. And then once we kind of get this thing, you know, inflation kind of curved off and, it, and, and, and we stop inflation, we're going to start dropping rates. And, and, you know, when you, when I talk to the average person out there, it's as though they think that, you know, rates are going to kind of come up and then they're going to go back down to where they were. And I, I just, I don't see how that is even possible. Can you, do you, can you chime in on that? I don't want to overly speculate where they're going to go. Sure. Uh, but what what I do know is that inevitably these kind of tight credit conditions force the Fed to start putting out fires. Think of it that every time they raise rates and trigger some degree of an economic slowdown, let's not make it doomsday-ish and, and everything, but ultimately they're forcing an economy to slow down to bring it back into balance. And uh, sometimes it's a soft landing, sometimes it's a hard landing. And uh, when they raise interest rates this magnitude, very similar to the regional bank crisis we saw six months ago, something is going to break. 
It almost always does. Somebody uh, is going to realize that they were the bag holder and they've been delaying things and suddenly, you know, something happens uh, and it creates a knock-on effect that causes everything to, uh, uh, to start cascading downwards. And the Fed is going to come in and start putting out fires. And they're going to start putting out fires by the only uh, true mechanism they have, which is starting up credit again. They'll put shit on their balance sheet again, and they'll start easing to allow credit to become cheaper again. How much will they have to ease is going to be a dependent on, uh, on how bad things get. If let's say the soft landing uh, narrative traders end up being right, and things kind of slow down, but we don't see negative GDP. We don't see massive spikes in unemployment. Well, the Fed's not going to do much in terms of cutting rates. They might even leave things unchanged for a long period of time. I think the next easing cycle uh, is going to come on the necessity to restart the economy because something went wrong. And the economy needs a boost. It needs a help. And the central bank is going to come in and boost and help it. Question is, how bad does it first get and how ugly does it get? Because often uh, when a Fed starts cutting interest rates, uh, it takes there's a lag effect for that money to make in uh, make it into the system. And so like when the Fed started easing in the start of 2008, the economy didn't turn until a year later in 2009. Now that was a pretty severe example. I'm um, using the most extreme one. But uh, even if they start cutting at some point, the bigger question is how long will the recession last? So earlier you asked the question, so how does this affect when to buy what and how, how the different assets have? Well, first of all, there's simple things like when the Fed inevitably starts easing, the first thing that almost always rallies is short duration bonds. And so this is a, the two year uh, bond. Let me put on a weekly chart. This is the two year bond. And what you want to think is that two year interest rates are incredibly strongly correlated to Fed policy because it's too short of a duration. So monetary policy plays an incredibly important role. And therefore, one of the simplest ways to speculate uh, that you, in, let's say, a belief that, let's say, there's going to be an economic uh, slowdown or recession that will force the Fed to start cutting, you have probably one of the easiest ways to trade it is by going long two-year bonds. That would uh, be the ones that would almost directly give you the compensation for the Fed easing. Now, that's the media. The other things, once the Fed starts easing, that's a cycle when they create credit that things like the US dollar turns down, gold does very well, all these different assets start to perform well when the Fed starts easing. Inevitably, uh, will come the economic green shoots that create the next major buying opportunity. And those green shoots tend to come about the halfway to three quarters through a recession. So, so the recession first has to be even confirmed, and then we have to be in it. And then what you always want to think is the stock market is always three to six months forward looking.
you know, these analysts are paid millions of dollars and uh, uh, for their macro perspective of being able to uh, see uh, where the inevitable economy is going. And they're acting not where the economy is, but where the economy is going to be. And this is what the most uh, uh, prevailing risk is to equity investors right here, because we're not in a recession. But when will that moment be where maybe a recession does happen and suddenly the stock market gives a shit? And, uh, and, you know, uh, suddenly has to correct the fact that there's going to be a 20, 30% contraction in earnings. Uh, you know, when you take the prevailing interest rates, which takes out all the multiples in equity, and then you turn around and have their, uh, the E and the PE ratio suddenly, you know, contract, you have no choice but to see the whole stock market reprice lower just because of the cycle. And so this is a, a very bumpy time for investors because real estate sucks, potential uh, uh, business earnings are tight, you have uh, um, you know, unemployment potentially rising, and you can't really rely on your uh, underlying assets to appreciate. It's a, it's, an, it's a very challenging moment. I know from you know, a business standpoint, and this was going to be one of the questions that I've got a few questions here teed up, but, um, but to your point with these high interest rates, you know, businesses are making less money. Therefore they have less money to save, to go invest into their business and, or expand their business. Unemployment, what's happening with unemployment? I have, I don't have a pulse on it, to be honest with you. Is, are we status quo or? Well, yeah, unemployment has actually been resilient, but in, in fairness, Unemployment is the uh, is the uh, the lagging factor. By the time unemployment spikes, we will already be in a recession. You can't get a leading element to this uh, indicator. If I'm the average person who you know their their mortgage has doubled, and they're looking to decide, hey, how long am I? And I know you're not and. You know, and I'm not asking you to predict the time, but what, I'm I'm kind of trying to tee up the indicators that we'd look at. I'll, I'll even for ourselves, like we've had a cash position. You know, you know, our strategy has been keep a cash position invested into GICs. Uh, we're very short term GICs. I believe that interest. at some point in time, there is going to be an opportunity when. And I'm not saying, you know, it's going to be blood on the streets or anything, but there'll be an opportunity where, you know, maybe it's business owners who, and let's not forget the demographics, you know, the demographics of most business owners are, you know, baby boomers. They're, they're starting to get up there and they don't want to live through, you know, repeated cycles. So then they say, Hey, you know what? It's time for me to get out. If they didn't sell, you know, within the last couple of years when the peak happened and the money was free and everybody was able to you know, buy anything they wanted. Now, you know, like you said, businesses are devaluing in price or they're, they're what their worth is because it costs too much money to go buy that business. Um, startups have dwindled to damn near zero because free money has stopped and people are actually looking at going, okay, well, it actually costs money now to, to go out and buy a company, you know? So, you know, I'm just trying to get an idea of like, hey, if we, you know, it's too, maybe it's too late to look at unemployment, but are, what would be the key indicators? Like you talked about that two-year bond rate. 
you know, that would be maybe one well, of them. Well, the two-year bond's going to move because the Fed has moved, right? Like the, yeah, and so you're going to know that the Fed is easing and you'll know that the two-year is rallying. It's a, it, 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 you don't need to watch a two-year, you just need to watch what the central banks are doing. But if the central banks are easing, it's because there's trouble or trouble on the horizon and you want to buy a business or invest in something when there's trouble, you might still be paying a higher interest rate for six months or a year or maybe even two years. But, but if you buy it cheap and sit with a higher interest rate for a year, and then all of a sudden the rates come down, now you've got lower rates and you've got a good deal on the business or the house or the real estate or whatever it is that you're you buying. Nailed it. Well, you nailed it because uh, when you buy a company on the cheap, you are buying it because it's being discounted for the prevailing economy and the prevailing interest rates. And, uh, and that is the valuation of that business. And just like the two-year bond, if you are buying, uh, like right now, if you buy the two-year bond, you're essentially buying at the cheapest it's been in a decade. Like it has not been this cheap in the same way when you buy a business at the uh, bottom of a recession where interest rates are incredibly high, then their earnings are at the least that it's possible. And how much you pay for the earnings in terms of the multiple has to be accounted for the in prevailing interest rate and how easy it is to get credit. And so you literally are buying the company at such a discount that it probably can carry itself initially. And then you have all the asymmetry in your favor. As soon as there's easing and the cutting of interest rates, that company's earnings have a, a chance to rebound. You have the ability to refinance at lower interest rates. You have an opportunity to make money. It's that old adage of, you know, you buy when there's blood on the streets. Uh, and, uh, and so this is a scenario where, uh, where, you know, you have to look at it and ask yourself, uh, when is the right time to look at this, but right now, I don't think people are desperate enough. I, I honestly think that people are incredibly tight and they're very worried and they're paying attention for the first time, but nobody is puking in a bucket yet. And it's when there, uh, there's a spike in bankruptcy rates because the one thing that will be for certain is that there are going to be a large amount of people that uh, overextended themselves on credit and the thing that is the lag time that it takes for that to kick in. So uh, let's just use it and visualize it with an average homeowner that is very highly leveraged on their mortgage, right? In the end, they will literally give up almost every discretionary spending that they can, including selling the fun assets like a motorbike or something like this. They will raise capital, whichever way to make that mortgage payment, including borrowing money from their parents or doing something, they'll do everything possible. So in order to get them to a stage where they will default on their mortgage and walk away from that home, uh, you need a very long extended period of pain uh, where, where, where they, all of their resources have been tapped. And this is where a, a, the big mistake a lot of people are doing is saying, look, the Fed's been raising for two years and we're still fine and unemployment is low. It means that everything is good and nothing's going to happen. I actually uh, would argue otherwise. If you think about it, back in 2007, 2008, the Fed was uh, raising interest rates. It started in 2004 
and they raised interest rates by like 5% or something like this, 4 4% and change by 2006. It was in early 2007 that we started seeing subprime mortgage companies starting to blow up. They started getting buy, bought out by the major companies. Uh, there started being cracks. And then it was in the summer of 2007 when two Bear Stearns uh, subprime hedge funds blew up. And they had to be bailed out and the whole system and the stock market dropped 10, 15 percent. And yet the stock market in October of 2008, in spite of the fact that the uh, most banks were 30 percent off of their highs, the equity market still managed to rally to an all time new high in October 2007. Right. Like uh, all of these cracks started happening and everyone's like, no, look, everything is fine. Uh, stock markets are making new highs. And yet by uh, January of 2008, uh, it was irreversible uh, and uh, the, the feedback mechanism broke. All I'm saying is there's a long lag time to when uh, tightening of financial conditions ultimately breaks things. And this is why next year is going to be incredibly interesting. I think everybody needs to be eyes wide open. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to uh, sound alarmist, but just look at where we're in the credit cycle. Look at the impact. You know, the, there's $90 trillion of credit stock in the United States and interest rates runs from zero to 5%, right? Uh, how's that? In, uh, a bunch of this debt has to be refinanced at higher rates. Where is that debt? So, I mean, I've heard that's that's a, the credit stock of all debt. So, thirty-three trillion of it is obviously federal U.S. Uh, federal debt, like at a government level. But there's mortgage debt, student loans, credit card debts, uh, uh, SME loans, every every form of credit that exists combined on aggregate somewhere near ninety trillion. It's an insane number. I'm sure it's probably never been higher ever in the history of- Yeah, but that's the nature of money, sure. right? Because inflation is destroying the purchasing value money of time. And therefore everything, including the value of your home and everything appreciates over time because of the uh, of that systematic erosion. So the debt, of course, is going to be the highest it's ever been at this point. But it's about the fact that impact of a 5% rise in interest rates on that debt is more the more interesting question, which is uh, at what point does something break? You know, like here, I wanted to just highlight the one thing so I can just take it off the screen. But in spite of all of the subprime and bank troubles in 2007, the spike to, uh, towards four or 5% in unemployment didn't happen till January, February, and March of 2008, where we got to 5%. And it and the real spike in unemployment to six, seven, eight, nine percent happened uh, during late 2008 into early 2009, when already everything was, uh, was broken and, and the world was on fire. Don't be necessarily fooled because you don't see you know, un high unemployment rates just yet? When unemployment is going up, it's already too late. Like uh, it's it, at that moment, you're already deep in a recession and you should probably, in fact, I would argue when unemployment is actually really spiking is probably when you should already be thinking about what am I gonna buy? <laughs> that's what I was, that's what I'm, <laughs> selfishly, that's what I'm thinking. But I also think like, I think it, helps people understand. I think the whole point to this conversation that I think it's lost sometimes is that we're in this uh, a 
bought in the cycle. And it, it's going to continue. The cycle is going to continue until, until something impacts it where it turns the other way. And so that opportunity, if you're prepared for it, it, it's a great position to create massive opportunity and not to be afraid of it. This is, to me, this isn't a doomsday conversation. This is a conversation that, you know, I didn't have enough wealth in 07, 08 uh, in order to really leverage, you know, opportunities. I had a few friends who made, I mean, just truck loads of money, uh, built great businesses, employed lots of people, influenced, you know, communities and did really good things. Um, and because they were cap well capitalized moving into, you know, that cycle. And so it's really about preparing people to be prepared, you know, to be ready for this cycle as we are potentially moving into it. I'm a hundred percent with you. Uh, you know, uh, to me, uh, every crisis creates opportunity and, uh, the way that, uh, I always try to convey the analogy to my members and listeners on the different podcasts is, you know, when you see storm clouds coming at your boat, you batten down all the hatches, drop the sails, and you basically try to, you know, uh, wait out the storm and, and weather the storm and hope you don't capsize, right? Like you're, you need to batten down and play defense. And then when the storm clears, you draw, you pull up the sails again and you go. This is not about everyone's ship is about to sink and, uh, you know, the world is ending. The fact is, though, the people that will do the best are the ones that actually batten down the hatches. The other ones that say, no, there's never a storm. I'm going to be fine. I can just keep going a hundred miles an hour down, uh, uh, down the thing. Suddenly the storm hits and they didn't batten down the hatches. And now the boat's full of water and, uh, and they're trying and they're sinking. You know, um, you, uh, this is where you just need to be fluid understand how credit and money and central banks and economic cycles impact you and become one with it like you have to you have to be willing to deal gross and deleverage at times when things are tight or before they're going to get tight and then you take advantage with the fact that you have all this extra credit um, to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves on the turn. And, uh, and that's what market timing in some degree or another is. You know, everyone tries to make market timing about day trading. But to be honest, the, the true market timers are the ones that understand these cycles and, uh, and play the long game. Yeah, they're the Ray Dalios of the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, but I mean, if you're just a you know everyday person, or you you have a or you have a business, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm and you said earlier, like in Canada, and I think you mentioned um, Australia, and I'm not sure about the UK, but we have you know four year terms to our to our mortgages. Um, let's say the average is four years. If it's five years, you've got you know. 20% of your mortgages are renewing every year. Uh, so the people who now who are thinking, and I, you know, cause you'd mentioned this and I just want to, yeah, yeah. I'm not ever throwing out advice. It's just, Hey, go do your own research and have these as considerations when you're doing your research. But if uh, over the course of the next year or two years, 20 to 40% of mortgages are going to renew 
uh, people are looking, 20 to 40% of the people out there are looking at their mortgages doubling or potentially tripling, uh, depending on what their mortgage rate was and what they're going to be renewing at. Uh, you know, there could be lots of trouble for these people. And I know oh, a lot of people who are, I've heard, I've talked to a lot of people. It's like, well, I can't afford to get rid of my house right now because I'm locked in for two years at a cheap mortgage. And if I sold my house, you know, then I'm moving into a new place with a higher mortgage. Let me speak to that because um, that that actual problem with uh, being locked into a cheap mortgage uh, that constrains that actually is a bigger problem in the U.S. than it is actually here. Because if you locked in a two percent mortgage rate on a thirty-year fixed, you've got two percent on this property for its life. The thing is, is that if you sell it, you have to get a new mortgage based on the prevailing rate. And so now, even though a lot of Americans are not uh, being uh, suffering from the, the renewal of higher mortgage rates the way Canadians are, their mobility has just got decimated. Uh, like you can't sell your house to go and move to another state uh, without there being a huge tax to you. Uh, in in uh, in what you're doing, but this is a uh, thematically something that uh, Kevin Muir and myself talk about a lot on the market huddle because uh, we're both Canadians and um, uh, and so we're much more familiar with the way the Canadian economy is sensitive to these things. And uh, one of the th arguments that Kevin makes, which is the one that I completely agree with, is is that Europe and Canada and even Australia and New Zealand, these countries are all going to fall into an economic recession before the US will. It's largely because while Bank of Canada literally, you know, uh, we, we kind of say, oh, we have an independent uh, central bank, complete nonsense. Uh, Canadian monetary policy is just mirrors U.S. monetary policy, uh, like literally there, there is barely any independence. There's some nuance uh, and some slight deviation, but almost every rate hike and rate cut cycle is literally just piggybacking off of U.S. policy. And so when the global central banks all raised interest rates, the, the Fed wasn't thinking, oh, shit, this is going to screw over Canadians. Uh, you know, they're, they're, that's the last thing that's on their mind. But yet our, the Bank of Canada did not hesitate at all to do this rate hike cycle. And I actually think it's going to get very political because the existing, I'm not going to try to get all uh, politics here, but the existing government that's in place is going to have to take responsibility for what happened under their watch. The thing is, is that a lot of people are in Canada are suffering from not having sufficient money to uh, to live as their cost of of carrying a mortgage or rent uh, skyrocketed and the cost of food is rising, cost of gasoline is rising, everything is is rising and it makes it incredibly challenging to make ends meet and inevitably there's going to be a period where those Canadians that overextended themselves and don't have someone that they can lean on 
you know, luckily, you know, a lot of millennials and uh, Xers can lean on their boomer parents that might have some extra resources that to help them make short term ends meet. But if you for those that don't have plan B or some other place to lean on, they all have no choice but to uh, downgrade their lifestyle. They, they, because they, they have to go back to living within their means. And it's, uh, it's going to be a very challenging period uh, that is going to lead to an economic contraction of some sort. And it, it's going to be worse in Canada, in my opinion, than it's going to be in the U.S. What do you think the factors are going to be for Canada? Like you, you, the, the minute you say to me, people are going to have to really look at their lifestyle and pare back. Uh, I think about, you know, third vehicles or second vehicles or recreational vehicles like boats and, you know, snowmobiles or, or the ATVs and all that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, that, that industry has been on a tear for the last three or four years. Uh, and now, you know, people who've financed some of that stuff, they got to unload that, that financing, sell these sometimes either at a loss just to get rid of the monthly nut does that turn the auto car loan industry upside down? Like, I mean, absolutely. The uh, I would argue autos and uh, and consumer discretionary companies like Harley Davidson, all these uh, BRP, uh, you know, Kawasaki, luxury luxury watch uh, makers, you know, all of the discretionary spending kind of brands. Uh, are the ones that are going to uh, are most exposed to the cyclicality of the and sensitivity to the cycle, because when people get tight, they cut the things that uh, that are like letting them allow them to live a better lifestyle or keep up with the Joneses to show they got their Rolex on and shit. You know, they you know, they can do all of this, but th those are the things that are the first things to be cut in order to make their mortgage payment. And, you know, and, and I'm sure in Canada, there will be no shortage of Uber drivers over the next year. Uh, you know, like people making, uh, making ends meet by selling their time. You know, I don't know how I'm going to make my next, uh, I'm, I'm going to $300 short on, uh, on making my ends meet. I'm going to have to put in 10 hours of Uber. You know, like you're, uh, you're going to see uh, people that are going to try whatever they can uh, to uh, survive. And that's, uh, but you know what? I do believe on the other side of it will come once again a period where things will be good again. Uh, this, like, I, I don't mean to Peter Schiff here, uh, where, you know, uh, basically the world is ending, uh, US dollar is going to collapse, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Like, no, I don't, I don't want to go there. I mean, anything can happen. But I think that expecting uh, the cycle to just be a cycle is, uh, I think, the safest uh, assumption with the greatest probability. And you can always look for outliers where, well, maybe that something is different. And how do I hedge out that left tail risk uh, of something being worse? But, you know, this to me, uh, this is where you just need to have some cash on the side, play a little bit of defense and let the bloodletting in the economy happen. And once uh, once it's done, comes opportunity and uh, and you just have to wait it out. And where we are in the cycle, uh, we're past midway, would you say? Like, are we in the like eighth inning, well, seventh the, inning? 
we are literally just uh, when we're recording this a, a few days from arguably the Fed pivoting. So we know the tightening phase of the cycle has probably already fully played out. But what ends up happening is central banks tend to wait to see what the data comes out before they act again. They're very reactive versus proactive. They don't speculate on what they think is going to happen. They're data-driven often. And so they want to see what the impact of the rising interest rates had on the economy. And so you're going to have a period where they're going to keep tight financial conditions going into next year, which is why I honestly think uh, recession risks in the periphery countries outside of the U.S. is going to be uh, great. I would, I, a lot of times, a lot of times you don't actually know you're in a recession till months later when the, uh, when the analyst can go look back and say the recession started. Like you might have an analyst that will come out and say, actually, the recession started in October 1st, but nobody knows we're in the recession yet. There's just not enough data to, to be confirming this kind of stuff. And uh, I would argue that a lot of these countries, like for instance, Germany's arguably well into a recession. Uh, you know, England, has, uh, is going through heavy contraction. Canada is going through heavy contraction. Australia is going through heavy contraction. You have basically uh, global economies all slowing. And, um, and the U.S. initially might be the most resilient. That's going to drive further strength in U.S. dollars. Uh, and uh, on the short term, I would not be surprised if the U.S. dollar continued to strengthen back like a euro once again under parity, Canadian dollar above 140 on the U.S. CAD. Uh, like these kind of numbers, I think, are in the cards now. And at some point, it's going to be an amazing opportunity, you know, and that's, uh, you know, that's why, uh, you know, you listen to my macro outlooks. You know, it's like we, we basically, uh, you know, what I just want to be eyes wide open and assess it uh, as uh, fairly as possible to just understand where we are uh, and, and what are the opportunities that are, that, uh, are, are available out there. So as we move through this cycle, uh, so I didn't, I, I Eighth inning? Where would you say we are, roughly? Well, uh, it depends. Uh, I, I, if if you're t again the tightening cycle, we're probably eighth, ninth inning. Uh, but there's a long gap before an easing cycle begins because they're going to wait for data. And more importantly, just because an easing cycle did begin doesn't mean the buying opportunity is there. Uh, for instance, uh, the buying cycle, like, okay, let's just go back to interest rates uh, and the Fed the, in the 2000 and the financial crisis. Notice here that the Fed went from five and a quarter percent cutting in to December of 2008, almost zero. And the stock market didn't happen until March 2009. So in other words, the major buying opportunity actually happened after the entire easing cycle played out. And so uh, certain things, though, like when uh, money supply expands and credit is contracting, uh, thing, uh, early performing assets would be like gold. Uh, there's different assets that will actually perform better uh, earlier, uh, but uh, it, it all depends.
obviously uh, I, I don't have a crystal ball to know how severe something gets or whether this is a very tame and easy cycle. I, I find it very difficult to imagine this being a tame and easy cycle because geopolitics are so polarized uh, and the world uh, uh, is essentially moving toward escalation of war and war happens to be very inflationary. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, if inflation is sticky, then the Fed can't just go, we're going to cut back to zero. All right. Or, and or so, they may, could they increase the interest rates even more if we, if we get this stickiness? It's possible. Uh, I, considering the, the, the tightness of current financial, it could be a hiccup thing. It could be a scenario where, for instance, uh, you have, a, uh, you know, uh, interest rates uh, drop as they're easing. And then uh, we go through another inflationary cycle that basically has uh, forces interest rates in 2026, 2027 to go through a, a major uh, increase again. I think that what happens is we're going into a contraction cycle in 2024. And what uh, people like my co-host uh, uh, Kevin on the huddle uh, argue, or even uh, Eric, uh, who I co-host Macro Voices with, Often, uh, they uh, suggest that we are in a secular inflation cycle, which is that inflation will be sticky the whole decade. Uh, and we'll kind of go through periods where inflation comes back down, but then it'll fire back up again. That kind of stuff, I think, will be uh, the story of the decade. Uh, I, I, there will be money to be made. It's just, it's going to, this cycle will play out very different than past cycles. And, uh, and so you have to think through the natural byproduct of these things and own those assets that are most likely to perform well in those kind of periods. Which of those assets, this is going to, I was sitting on this question actually here for a bit, but which are the assets at kind of this stage in the cycle and leading into the next cycle would be the ones where you might want to focus some attention on learning and studying and watching kind of what it's doing. That'd be the one question. Uh, and then well, I'll follow up with another question after, after the answer on that one. Right now, uh, when somebody that's not an active trader, because obviously as active traders, you know, we, we're going to go do option writing tactically at different ways, using different strategies, do all sorts of different, more advanced ways. We can go short the market, long the market, play commodity futures. There's so many different things that a, a more sophisticated investor can do. But when I'm speaking to someone who doesn't make trading like that a part of their lifestyle or they don't have the knowledge base to, to do that, um, the best asset is the money market. Like right now, uh, I don't see the problem in someone locking in a 5% rate for the next six to months to a 12 months and uh, going and playing some golf and just uh, enjoy life and invest into growing as a person, look to develop uh, new innovative ideas that would be entrepreneurial stuff that you can do later on. But this is, it's too early to be thinking about 
what is going to be uh, a great investment. One thing, though, like I said, I think that there's uh, an investment in energy uh, and most resources in general have uh, experienced a massive uh, underinvestment in capital expenditures uh, that have not allowed them to replenish stock uh, and commodity shortages, I think will be a story for, for many, many years to come. The uh, evolution of uh, uranium uh, uh, as an investment. Uh, I continue to think that uh, people are going to realize that uh, uh, you know the amount of energy that one can safely and cleanly make in the new versions of these nuclear plants is far better than throwing a bunch of spinny flywheels out into the uh, on on the hilltops uh, and for more consistent power to allow an electric car revolution and other things to, to transpire. There isn't enough copper investment being made to supply that will need that kind of a transition. Yeah, most people think that uh, energy will decline as it's replaced. But uh, what's interesting is, is that odds are that while electric cars will be replacing, uh, let's say, uh, gas combustion engines, the general demand of oil is likely not to drop much. And therefore, if you're not discovering new projects and putting new investment in place, there will become oil shortages uh, that will happen. It's counterintuitive in coal shortages. Like um, what everyone calls coal a dirty, uh, a, a dirty re a re a resource, but metallurgic coal is is incredibly important and still very necessary. And and people don't want to invest in this because of the ESG movements and things like that. So I think there's great opportunity there. And I feel that as the central banks are forced to uh, start bailing the system out again and providing liquidity owning short duration bonds like two-year treasuries and things like this, uh, even with leverage uh, and owning precious metals and other things like that are all going to be early winners. And obviously buying the dip ultimately at the end of some sort of a bear market in equity is always something that everyone wants to do. And you know, like when, when stock markets are 30, 40, 50% off their highs. Of course, everyone wants to, uh, to fantasize about going on a shopping spree and buying it. I would just simply say to you, all of the uh, listeners that you don't want to rush into that. You, uh, there will be an amazing equity buying opportunity, but it's likely even a year away, even at nine months to a year away. If you were somebody who, who was potentially could be dislodged through in their, in their job uh, during this time, or if you were a student coming out of school and you wanted to buy a business or start a business, are there industries that you might suggest based on your knowledge of, of what could happen in industries yeah, I, I wish I had something smart to say. Uh, like obviously, um, uh, obviously, you, innovation. Uh, you know, like for instance, uh, I wish I better understood how dramatic of an impact artificial intelligence will have on the world, and the amount of uh, old jobs. Uh, that uh, are going to be allowed to be made far more obsolete or, or simply far more efficient with the use of AI means that 
uh, human resources will be deployed to new industry and new ideas because those old jobs are not going to be there. And I don't mean to say that there's going to be starting 30% unemployment because AI replaced everyone. It's just what's going to happen is, is that uh, those jobs are going to be put into new industries and new, uh, and new areas that uh, are there. So you have to have the flexibility to see how the world is changing and seeing where the opportunity lies rather than saying I'm getting get into the uh, buggy whip uh, industry of, uh, uh, you know, when when uh, cars replaced horse wagons, right? Uh, you know, like you, you have to think how is the world evolving? And the, the insane part is for most of us, our brains have a hard time comprehending the rate of change of our society. Things are evolving so rapidly. The global landscape is reshaping so rapidly that most people uh, are incredibly intimidated by what's happening and very confused. And rightfully so. That's just because our brains can't uh, are, are not uh, capable of of taking all of this data and putting, it's like a, it's like having a 5,000 piece a jigsaw puzzle thrown at your face and tell me at what picture did you see? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like uh, it's just a lot of data coming at you and it's not easy to process, uh, you know, what is it that I'm seeing? This is where, you know, I love to bring on super smart guests uh, to, to our different shows to, to try and give us clues as to uh, what, it, what is evolving and what's happening. But uh, we live in interesting times. Yeah, the markets are, I mean, well, the global economy and the markets, it seems like it's just, it, it's in an insane time. I think, you know, from a, you know, a business ownership standpoint, I look at things like, well, where are the demographic curves going? Because, you know, it's, you know, demographic curves are undeniable, you know, with demographic curves, you know, follow purchasing, um, trends. And so, you know, people who are looking at, you know, either being dislodged from their position or job, um, and, and, or students who are looking to buy a business or start a business. Um, I think also to your point about technology is technology does open the door in a very significant way for people to start their own business and, leverage efficiencies that were not there, I mean, five years ago. Uh, and where those efficiencies will be in the next uh, five years, uh, I, I couldn't answer that question. But with what I've seen, like ChatGPT, just as an example, you know, and how we use it in our businesses, I mean, that is going to change things in a significant way when people really start to understand how they can leverage it. And you'll have, you know, disruptors you know, coming into businesses, you know, marketing is one that I think of right away, you know, the, off the top of my head, which, you know, you can really start to do a lot uh, with jumping on technology and, and the things that are happening in that realm. So definitely for young people, let's be realistic, old farts like us have a hard time adapting to the, uh, the rate of technology wh where young people uh, are far more um, adaptive because they've only known this technology. Uh, it's, it's the only thing that they have known and they can adapt. And so uh, you know, young people starting businesses that help 
the older generations that have all the experience of running businesses and the capital and the resources learn to uh, to utilize this AI. Um, you know, that's where a lot of young people who may find a, a, an important role in, in uh, you know, as entrepreneurs. Like you think about it, like uh, helping an older generation understand how to harness the amazing power that some of this stuff unlocks uh, is uh, maybe an industry in itself. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm just curious when one of the things that's been sitting on my mind a little bit here while we've been talking is the geopolitical world, geopolitical kind of scenario with um, uh, Russia, China, and, and Brazil getting together potentially with their currencies. And I think India's in there too. Yeah. The BRICS. How does that really start to impact our landscape for sure as Canadians, but with the U S and the deleveraging of the U S dollar, is that a thing? There's so many talking heads that I, I find that a confusing message. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of touch on it. Peak globalization was, uh, when the whole, uh, the hegemony of the world was anchored off of a U.S. dollar based system where, uh, the vast majority of all global trade and resources and exchange of goods uh, was uh, using the U.S. dollar as the actual currency of trade. Uh, and uh, countries that ran surpluses would uh, hold U.S. treasuries on their central bank balance sheets. And, uh, and that was an era where I would argue was uh, and I say was because in many ways I feel that that was the peak of the U.S. empire. Uh, you know, empires have come and gone over uh, many, many centuries and, uh, and millennia. And, uh, and I think that that was the moment where the U.S. was at its peak control over the situation. And, and since then, we've seen some degree or another of deglobalization uh, friend shoring and all these different uh, elements happening. And one of the biggest obstacles, you know, for the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, and South Africa, which is the ones that originated, but there's many more countries that have come aboard. Now, I mean, they represent 3 billion citizens, right? Like they're, uh, you're talking about half of the world population in that one uh, cohort. And uh, they basically have the opinion that there's too much control that the United States has in having the privilege of being the world reserve currency. They basically, uh, and you can see just the dramatic impact that they can have through things like sanctions to control other countries and bring them in line. And, you know, I mean, the U.S. is learning very quickly, you know, with this conflict, you know, that when Russia understood the consequences of their actions and the subsequent sanctions that would come, how quick the Russian uh, economy was able to uh, decouple itself from its need to use U.S. dollars for its trade. We're going to a, a multipolar world where more and more countries are simply going to settle their future transactions uh, with their own uh, domestic currencies or some other type of an asset that will inevitably be formed. It's not a doomsday scenario for the dollar. I know so many people out there, the moment this happens, the US dollar is going to collapse. I don't necessarily think so, but I do think that we will see a period 
where global trade will go from 85% in US dollars down to 80%, down to 75%, down to 70% and 65%, where you're going to see more and more countries diversify their uh, global trade outside of the US dollar. And, and in, I would argue in many ways is why there is military expansion and war starting because the US has more or less been able to control the world through its financial means, the ability to sanction countries that misbehave and do all these things. But now that countries are decoupling from the financial system, unfortunately, the only secondary way to control the world is through force and military spending and, and all of these things. And unfortunately, I think that is now a new inherent feature of our decades to come with more and more war as being a part of it. And it's kind of shitty. I, I do not wish this. I don't like it. Uh, but unfortunately, all you see is new and new escalation on almost every single front. Uh, and uh, it will be really interesting to see. But it is um, a very challenging period for the world right now. It's an interesting comment, right? So they don't, there's not the accountability around the world because they don't have to rely on U.S. dollars. They can settle their, their trade in other currencies, whether it's Bitcoin or the, the, the renminbi. Or well, B- Bitcoin's not being used at a yeah. country level. That's where you know a lot of citizens are using it to circumvent capital controls and move money around and launder shit. Uh, but uh, but you know or CIA doing stuff. But like you're not uh, at a country level. They they're still predominantly driven by fiat currency. But one of the things that will grow is going to be uh, central bank digital currencies. Uh, and maybe uh, that becomes an inherent new feature in the years to come. Uh, but one way or another, there's enough countries out there that are tired of the U.S. being in charge of the system and they want less and less to do with it. And, uh, and this is something that on a macro scale, we have to learn to understand what it means and what impacts it's going to have uh, and what impacts it'll have on your investment or how you can move around or where you can do business. All sorts of different things are going to change. This volatility that, that we see, I mean, we haven't seen it in, I mean, most of the kids nowadays, they've never seen this. I mean, they've never seen expensive money. They've never seen volatility there is in the world. Uh, and, and this has a psychological effect on, you know, how they make decisions, how they act and how they treat one another. I mean, it's, it is going to be interesting times. I, I loved what you said earlier, uh, which was you, you used the phrase, the probability of risk. And I think it kind of sums up this conversation that we've had is, is like, first of all, I want to thank you for being here, but specifically for, for the listeners this is not necessarily advice and you know, you never know which way things will go. You can assess probability of risk. Uh, and so in your decision-making, it's important to study and to learn and, and to educate yourself uh, because we are in new times. I mean, you know, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's, I mean, the social landscape of, of our, of our country specifically, uh, the political landscape of our country, technology, there are a lot of influences at play in the, and, 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 um, and always have been, but, and this is not, 
doomsday or it's not bad. It's just, you know, this is an important time, I think, to get educated. I really can't thank you enough for being A, on the show and giving us your perspective uh, and really bringing it down to, you know, a, a level that, you know, you don't have to be an expert in to understand. Like you've really, I, I know you, I've had conversations with you at a high level. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> because you know this you know this stuff like the back of your hand you live it every single day and i just would say like to anybody who's listening you know checking out um macro voices and uh the market huddle which you're a co-host on uh, both those podcasts um but big picture trading too and i'm not i'm not you didn't, i know you didn't come on here for me to pump your uh pump your tires here <laughs> you're extremely successful but you know big picture trading I, I watch your videos every Monday. Uh, it's uh, if anybody, how do people reach out to you if they, if they wanted to get in contact with you? Well, anyone that uh, tries a free trial at bigpicturetrading.com automatically is put on the mailing list. And so even if uh, you don't end up uh, choosing to purchase anything, uh, those macro outlooks you're talking about uh, automatically uh, get sent to you for free from that point on. So it really is about uh, a free trial to, uh, to big picture trading and get into our wheelhouse. And, I, and I'll just say personally, like I, like I said earlier, I've known you for 15 years. You have such a high level of integrity. Um, the business that you've set up there, I'm on your mailing list and all that kind of stuff. And I, it's not offensive. Like if people want to educate themselves, I highly, highly encourage you to check out big picture trading because I mean, it just every week, honestly, every week, it just gives me this understanding it keeps me in flow of what is happening in the markets and what's happening uh, around the world and what influences us in terms of from a not just a money market standpoint, but where the trends are going. And these are important things to learn and important things to know. So uh, if you're a human being walking this planet, listen, this is just the way life is. But, but the markets and money influence kind of what we do and they can create stress and and chaos in your life but they can also create harmony and understanding and so if you're going to go educate yourself somewhere i think you're what you're doing is really awesome well thank you thank you very much uh for the kind words uh the the one thing i will say uh and it's really important for people to just reflect on a lot of people say Oh, I don't know if I have time to learn this or I don't want to learn it. But the one thing that people don't realize is that we all are being forced to play the game. Uh, if you don't understand how central bank works and how credit works, then when your mortgage doubled, you're confused why it happened. Uh, uh, but the thing is, is that uh, anyone who understands how the financial system works knew the risk associated with that. You know, those people that went and over leveraged a huge real estate business and owned 300 properties of, of homes that they're trying to Airbnb out and stuff. And suddenly the cost of uh, uh, their credit skyrockets and they're being forced to liquidate all their assets. You know, like you need to understand how the financial system works because you need to know uh, when are the risks and where's like the, uh, the analogy I'll give you to leave it uh, and then we'll close is that uh, think of uh, being a participant is uh, you know F1 car on a racetrack 
And what happens is that when you have easing cycles and great economies, it's like being on the, on the open stretch uh, where you can put the, uh, the pedal to the metal and go with 300 plus clicks on the open straightaway. Uh, but then you're, there's a hairpin turn coming up and you have to know when to start breaking and when to set up for the turn because that's where all the crashes happen. Uh, you know, you have to, and you have to consider yourself a race car driver. You can't just say it's all going to be straight away and there's never going to be turns and then crash the, uh, the vehicle on the first, uh, first turn. You have to understand how the race is played and how, how the car works and how the speed works and how, uh, and where this is. And then you have to be able to read the road and adjust, uh, accordingly. And that's, and that's sort of the way I look at, uh, the markets. I'll leave it at that point, Dwayne. It was a pleasure. Well, I'm going to throw up on one, just one on that, because as you were saying that it, it reminded me, you know, being educated in your money is one of the best things that you can do because you are either control in control of your money or somebody else is in control of your money. And when you hand that money to an investor and I'm not saying, Hey, you know, follow Patrick and become a trader. And because some people just don't have the psychology to be a trader, you're not like, it's, it's not like you're trying to turn everybody into a trader, but understanding what you just said uh, about the markets and about debt cycles and all that kind of stuff, it allows you to, to, to ask the questions of the people who are managing your money and speak intelligently to it and really do your research so that you can have quality conversations with quality questions and get the answers you're looking for. And if you don't like the answers, you can get second opinions. It's just like, I mean, the analogy I'd throw into this would be, it's like going to, to the doctor, uh, when you have, uh, you know, a disease like cancer, like you need to go and research, uh, or if you're having shoulder surgery or whatever, you have to have, you have to go out and spend some time and research what questions to ask the doctor to make sure that they're managing your health appropriately because you just can't leave it to somebody else. And so this stuff is really, really important. And it's, I, I feel like we're right on this edge of things, you know, happening in this cycle. And that's why I wanted to get you on. Um, and so I'm going to be really interested in watching the markets uh, over the next couple of months to see where things go. Well, listen, I'll be happy to jump back on and give you an update at some point. We maybe will do that. We'll, you know, put out an, uh, like a, like a, uh, off the mic type of, uh, uh, uh short podcast. That's not, uh, Done. two hours long, <laughs> but dude, thanks so much. I really appreciate you being here. It's great catching up. I know it's been a while since we've uh, talked face to face. So, uh, I, I mean, I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much, Dwayne. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week. The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan, or the Business of Doing Business podcast, is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. 
The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.